podcast about digital media. Usually that's the thing that we've categorized ourselves as on all the major podcast platforms. So probably a little bit too late to change the topic. Anyway, we're back. Episode five, pumped to get into it. Tonight we have brought on our friend and former associate in multiple settings and forms, Darren Fike. Darren, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Lee. So Darren Fike here. As Lee mentioned, used to work with uh, this group, with Lee and David, specifically uh, in a couple of stops in my career. I've had the opportunity to work with, with all three of these people in a media environment, a integrated marketing environment, if you will, and have spent the last few years of my career focused on customer experience and e-commerce, more in the tech space. Happy to be here, Lee, and the rest of you guys. Thanks for bringing me on board. Yeah. So you're saying that you spent the last few years of your career getting away from us specifically. That's true. And then here we are today to talk about what in some form or fashion brought us together. So in a way, this, this is almost like a nostalgia act here. I love it. I mean, A, getting away from us, like my spirit tries to separate from my body every time I open my work email these days. But again, it's, it's reunited by its need to occupy a living corporeal vessel. It's a real compromise. I think we brought Darren back, maybe not in the spirit of compromise. We may do a little anti-careerism for ourselves here by dropping a few dunks on elements of the ad agency space. That's fine with me. My mission on this podcast is to not stop until I'm 100% unemployable. I have a list of all the largest marketers in the world, and I will insult all of them. And so I'll be screeching from underneath the highway overpass soon. But speaking of, of taking big shits on people who might pay marketers a lot of money, got a couple interesting IPOs. Specifically, we have Airbnb and DoorDash. And Darren brought an extremely interesting fact to our attention about the marketing for both of those companies that I'll let him expound upon now. I'll start with Airbnb, who I'm into, and then DoorDash, who I'm not. So Airbnb released a stat recently before the IPO that was approximately 91% of their bookings traffic is not attributed to paid media or marketing. Clearly what's, what's interesting about that is that there's some assumptions to be made here, but it's that over the last decade, if you will, Airbnb has created a brand that people know to go to for what their relationship is with that brand and don't need to be told what that relationship is. So uh, from my perspective, I think that's powerful and is why they are poised, potentially poised to be, you know, a leader in global travel. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about the Airbnb stuff, and this is where I potentially like go out on a limb where I can't support myself, but I haven't seen the stat and I don't know, but like what could be very interesting is like, are they hiding this stat a little bit by also like excluding like any like CPM or CPC channels or tactics when like really there could be like in that 91% could be a lot of referral as well. So it's like probably saying like organic is pure organic, but in actuality, is it pure organic? And we're talking about what's that 9% kind of worth to someone like that. And or like with a lot of this properties that Airbnb has that really isn't their own. Like, I think that's where like, they're probably poised for for some success. And I think I, I definitely like align with you, Darren, uh, on being uh, much more bullish on them is in terms of they don't have the overhead as a lot of like traditional hospitality companies like do like, they don't own any of the properties or 
any, you know, um, that they have to market out. So like they can spend a little bit on those kind of things. But I think that also makes the difficulty for them in terms of this is so much like the consumer, the the owners and like putting them up and doing those kind of things. It might be kind of even hard to like, how do you search for that? Because really it's just, you just find Airbnb and then you search within there instead of searching for a specific like region and, and typing Airbnb or, or, or whatever. I think that is the consumer behavior that is probably pretty interesting from a paid or marketing side of things is people just know to go inside of Airbnb and their search product instead of searching for an area within Google and then also adding like Airbnb at the end, which is interesting. It's the true category creators benefit. They lean next in the modern era. I remember when couch surfing, which is just sort of a free community based thing existed. And I'm 99% sure that couch surfing predated them by a while, but as far as a commercial space, it's new. And I think that's a very interesting question about how are they defining the buckets that go into that 91% of bookings are not attributed to paid media. And it makes me think of something that I like to bring up so much that I actually edited it out of a previous raw version of this podcast. So this is technically the second time I'm mentioning it on this, even though no one's heard that. There's a story that might be apocrypha, but I, I bring it up because it's good for a lot of marketers to hear about Airbnb, which is that at one point... They had started out down sort of a paid performance marketing, you know, attribution dance game, but then they got stuck. Obviously they're like, well, we, we see all these channels are working for us, but there's all these other channels that allegedly don't work for us, but that goes against our vision for marketing. And at some point they had a meeting where someone was just like, if we turn all our digital, the first touch attribution, here's what it does. And, you know, someone powerful there was like, well, that looks good to me. That looks right. And they were like, let's just switch to it. And I like this story because it causes this reaction. A lot of marketers like, I can't just change my attribution settings to reflect what I want. And yeah, you can. And yes, in certain situations, that's bad. You could be taking an existing situation and trying to retroactively make it look like it was better than it was. But in that case, they're basically saying, well, we need a system to benchmark our marketing, but we don't like this whole system. We, we don't like the entire approach to marketing it engenders oh, we do like the approach to marketing that's engendered you know, by this. I like this first touch thing. It's a totally valid thing to say, we're doing the first touch attribution because it feels right, and then hold yourself to that. So I, again, it's kind of apocrypha, like I've never found the actual evidence that they definitively did this, but they definitely, I think, had an interesting approach to defining marketing activity by what they intended it to drive. So Lee, are you basically saying, like to summarize this or to, to shorten it up a bit, are you saying that their efforts to make the attribution as accurate as possible is highly likely to have left out a considerable amount of what is attributable to their marketing efforts, regardless of what those marketing efforts are? I think David brought up an interesting point. I thought, David, feel free to correct me that he was like, what if that stat is manufactured by that, that buckets? <laughs> I was saying that historically, even before I saw this 91% stat, I had heard this kind of apocryphal tale that they just sort of had, I think, an appropriately creative footloose and fancy free approach to picking marketing measurement. And that they were basically sitting at a meeting and someone was like, let's move our digital to first touch because it makes me feel good. But in a way that I don't think is dumb. So I have always regarded them as a marketer of, in a good way, kind of flexible measurement. I don't know if that plays into this or not, actually. 
Yeah, I, I was really like kind of talking about like, is this 91% stat obfuscated in, in some way? Just maybe just in pure like nomenclature in terms of, oh, we don't call that paid media. It's something else, you know, and, and not even like it's nefarious. It's just, it could just be a stat that is a stat because it looks excellent in, in a byline and the tagline under a headline. So what do you guys just find it might be hard to, be- it's like hard to believe that, that a, a company in tech would, would stretch something though. You know, it just feels like you got to take that at face value, right? Yeah. yeah. And it's funny <laughs> because like, I, and a figure that I like, I know the immense honesty of tech sector IPOs has us all <laughs> believing every single word. It's, it's funny because I, I've been listening to more Mark Ritz and stuff lately than usual. And he has the whole thing about you should spend like 60% on brand and it, it varies by vertical, but most verticals like 60% should be long-term oriented brand marketing, 40% performance. He's even had having started couching lately. Okay. Don't get yourself fucking fired from your job because a lot of CMOs, if you show up and do that, you're going to get fired before you get the payout. So maybe it's okay to start like 30, 70, you know, 70% performance, 30% brand, so you hear him basically being like 60, 40 is optimal. It takes a long time to get to 60, 40. Airbnb are like, we ripped out of the gate at 90, 10. Pew, 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 pew. If that's true, then they should be like the only marketer we're talking about. It's probably not entirely true. To your point earlier with the Kleenex thing, it's like, I feel like Airbnb has become the brand of that, you know, not hotel type of stay. Like I know there are other players in the space, like, I always say it wrong. V B R O V R B O, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Airbnb is what you stay in when you go somewhere and you don't want to stay in a hotel, regardless of if that's where you book it through. So part of it, I guess, and that's not measurable. And I was also thinking of to your point, David, of the measurability. Like I feel like Airbnb does a lot of good like offline outdoor ads and you can't track that kind of stuff. And you know, well, how can you say this wasn't a result i don't know those are kind of my initial thoughts yeah like it could be like kind of what the was talking about in terms of like the the first touch kind of conversation like if you're doing all of this brand messaging like those kind of things at the very beginning like and you're saying all of your bookings don't come from paid okay their last touch doesn't come from paid but all of the amount of money that you spent on those kind of things does attribute and you're kind of just washing dollars at that point in time you know so there, there's that element. There's another element and it's potentially slanderous. So I have my legal team on, on standby, but maybe they just don't have the funds for it. And like they're turning that around or like they're banking this performance marketing dollars into you know, rolling into the IPO, especially or right now when like you don't need to spend that much on marketing for, for something like that because like no one's traveling, no one's doing these things. So like you can kind of like bank that and potentially, you know, have a lot of like cash on hand to float your IPO uh, and make yourself like, potentially like look a little bit better. Not saying that they're doing that. No idea. Shooting from the hip here, completely blind, but it could be another thing that they're, that they're doing. Yeah. And I think Randy, you, you bring up a good point or, or both you and you and David are bringing up good points here is that maybe the real way to understand this is that because they are so differentiated, which is a compliment to Airbnb, that the understanding of their marketing efficiency needs to just be around cost of first acquisition because from there, so much of it depends on, which is in a way in Airbnb's hands, but it's what is happening? How does the experience work for that consumer that booked with you to drive that booking for the instance that Randy's talking about? Because I think, I think that the bookings for Airbnb break out into three categories. 
it's one, whenever you're going somewhere where a hotel is not accessible or it doesn't make sense to stay in a hotel. And what I mean by that, it's like, it's more convenient to stay in a house. Maybe you're staying longer term. Maybe it's somewhere like, like a little bit more desolate. I think number two is affordability because they do offer like the option to just rent a room in a house. And then the, the third, and this probably ladders up into that first one, but I do think it's a different category now is if you have a group that's just too big for a hotel. So like this demographic here probably sees a lot of like weddings and bachelor and bachelorette parties congregating within an Airbnb, but that's not limited to those circumstances. There's also, you know, family reunions, graduations, all sorts of things where it's just more convenient to say this group of eight to 10 people were getting an Airbnb. Yeah. And I think that's where thinking about the lifetime value of an Airbnb customer, and, and I don't know how they would even begin to approach that in terms of the revenue they're actually getting off of all of these different stays, but how much is that loyalty worth? You know, like I know that some people now, and like, I'm not putting myself in this group also, although like, where have I gone in the last 10 months? Nowhere. Um, the golf course. The golf course. Yeah. How, how often are you going to change the behavior? Like some people are just Airbnb people, I feel like, and they'll go wherever they won't even look at a hotel anymore. Whereas like, what are the different tiers of the customers, I guess? That's a good point because they invented a category and they didn't. And that they invented the category of, you know, leasing fallow space in people's homes as a hotel. But they are also technically competing with hotels, except in a bunch of cases where they don't. And what's interesting to me is I think you could say some of those cases where they're a truly differentiated product, quote, already existed. I think they've created entirely new situations where they don't coexist with hotels. For instance, Darren is talking about large groups. Hotels will sell you blocks of rooms, but that's kind of awkward and weird. I can't imagine being a block of room booking person. There are now probably gatherings where people weren't clustered together, where they now are clustered together exclusively because of Airbnb. Because like, oh, like actually 22 people are going here. I'm not going to book a block of rooms at a hotel. That makes me feel like, I don't know, some sort of cult leader. But I would book a large Airbnb house. It's interesting because they kind of invented some categories in that they made things so convenient for certain large groups that it created a new behavior. I mean, that, that's the best thing you can do in marketing short of outright creating a category. If you're Airbnb and you're like, let's create a category and someone's like, oh, it's called a hotel, bro. You can be like, we're going to invent new behaviors where people like wouldn't do shit with hotels. Maybe this really is an entirely different animal. And even though the stat is impressive, like you can't even use stats like this to look at an Airbnb. The last point I want to make here, this actually transcends with DoorDash too, which is a business I'm not very hot on, is that you see that these two, sometimes like more than two-sided marketplaces, where they're essentially a conduit, they're like a service to connect buyers and sellers. I mean, look at the value of a, a business like Shopify. And I'm like, we all can like whittle it down to saying this is a SaaS platform and it is, but it's also at the end of the day, it's it's a pretty affordable infrastructure that's pre-made, pre-built processes payments for sellers to connect with buyers for, in the SMB market. And so like their valuation, you see that they've gone from, I don't even know what they were at this time last year. Let's say that it was definitely somewhere below whether they're at today, they're one of the hottest shares on the market. And a lot of that is just that they're a conduit for both sides of the marketplace that they've created. 
Shopify Slaps, that's a company I also am a big believer in the value <laughs> of. I'm just such an advocate for the restaurant industry. And I'm going to caveat this by making it really clear that I use DoorDash. I use caviar sometimes. I'd prefer not to. I'd say that in New York City, in the midst of the pandemic, like for how often I'm ordering in, I'm using it more than before, but simultaneously less than I could. I, I try to avoid it where I can. And the big thing is, is that the difference with Airbnb is that you're creating value for both sides of your marketplace. So whereas somebody who could have an extra room could have a personal problem where they need to rent out their apartment to make ends meet or to make to the end of their lease, or it's somebody that's looking for bigger real estate, real estate in a market that's underserved by hotels, whatever that reason is, you're creating two-sided value at Airbnb. At DoorDash, don't get me wrong, I understand that they're creating access to consumers in a congregated or consolidated marketplace, but it is predatory in the sense that you know, they're basically pulling a ticket master and taking, you know, big fees. They're charging big fees to the consumer while taking a significant rev share from the restaurant. And so I think that it's tough business model on an industry where margins are already really slim and that the industry, so the service industry restaurants, it just wasn't really built for 30 to 35% cuts into their ticket prices. And that's essentially what DoorDash has done. Yeah, I think what's going to be really kind of interesting or kind of like the parallels that I draw as someone who has multiple of, of these companies, you know, that, that I use and I justify it as in terms of like, I've tried to order directly from these places and I'm just outside of their normal like delivery, you know, circumference. And so I'm like, cool. I justify it by like, I'm still supporting them and it's a restaurant that I like. And yeah, it's not the the full, but it's better than nothing, which is kind of sometimes a tough pill to even like personally swallow. But, you know, one of the things I always like kind of think about is like, maybe a way to move in the spaces to kind of like how like Lyft came in, Uber very much already like done like dominated the space. The narrative that kind of circulated from word, word of mouth is that the drivers get more of the tip, they get more of the fare. Like it felt like there was less money going into the big corporation and more money going into like the individual or like the, the driver and those kind of things. And I think that could be an interesting space for any one of these companies to like jump on in terms of like the, the marketing conversation that like what differentiates them outside of maybe their, their restaurant roster or whatever they have to, to offer, but just being like, we give back more to these like small businesses and like, we don't like rake them over the coals and extort them because now we're the gatekeepers of the flow of customers and those kind of things. That's where I think that these companies are kind of, uh, of icky, but they're all equally icky at this point in time. Uh, and they're like, kind of a weird necessity, especially like during, during COVID. And maybe that's one of the reasons why we, I think we're all kind of like lukewarm on like the, the DoorDash IPOs. Like what differentiates DoorDash from any of the other providers at this point in time? Structure uh, of the company and, and management and they're like, their cash flow and how they manage it differently. As, a, as an investment opportunity, like I don't see necessarily the upside of, of DoorDash versus Grubhub or any of the other like places. I'm yeah. kind of like lukewarm to cold on them. I don't see the value prop long-term. I think that's super interesting. And I think you make a great point of like, 
there is this that little thing and first of all I want to shout out Juno which was the original ride sharing that claimed they gave more to the consumers and also this is a Max Kalfas thing he told me about Juno and then he got mad that I shared my code with everyone and then I got called and I did a uh, in-person survey with Juno and they were like you're one of our top like referral code sharers and I was like yep yes I am anyway <laughs> but I think that's exactly what that space needs because like I get so annoyed when it's like minimum delivery $30 and I'm like I'm just trying to order a burrito bowl from Dos Toros <laughs> and it's like plus $5.99 delivery fee and then of course I want to tip but I'm like what is the delivery fee and so all you need to do is say like actually this $5.99 is a direct thing to the restaurant and then I'm like all for it because I do feel like to your initial point Darren it's like nobody's really winning in this situation. It's like, it is a means to an end. And yes, I need, I want to get food from this place, but no one's really super benefiting. It's costing me $25 for my $11 burrito bowl. Right. And I think that that's what it comes down to is that you think about one of you buy a ticket on, you know, on a non-independent ticketing site, maybe you're buying it directly from like a, a sporting team or, or, or something like Ticketmaster. And you know that those exorbitant fees are what you are paying to essentially use their service. It doesn't make it necessarily like right for the band or the artist or the, the athletes, but they're getting the lion's share of that cut. And that's why those fees are so high. And it, it's confusing whether it's DoorDash or one of their competitors. And to David's point, they all basically are the same. It's why are these fees so high? like in 100% agreement with you, no issue with tipping. If anything, I would say that the awareness around the importance of tipping has been heightened in the midst of the pandemic. And I'm even more willing to tip more than I did before. But it's, what are all of these line items in my subtotal? Where are they going? And, and why is DoorDash taking a cut from the restaurant within that? And what is it within these businesses that keeps them from being able to operate more like a uh, a ticket master where the fees that you see can be frustrating, but it's like, that's their margin. Whereas DoorDash's margin is built into, you know, what they're charging, what the, the meal item is as well. I think a fascinating thing that kind of hit me and I hear this is all the mention of like, what's the delivery fee versus the tips. There's this thing that's happened in the pandemic that's completely insane. I generally try to tip the absolute maximum that is even appropriate or well beyond appropriate in any given situation, largely because I have a number of friends who work in the bar service industry and I'll just be socially excommunicated for not doing that. What I found myself kind of flipping out about that I didn't expect to, and I'll explain my reaction and, and what flipping out was in this case, the number of things that people have been asked tip on with the explosion of various services going to delivery or otherwise being made unconventional is wild. And I want to clarify that I'm not saying that I'm like, I'm not tipping for this stuff. The opposite. I, I probably aired high, but I think going beyond the realm where we all kind of know what to tip or, you know, food service and standard table service or counter service or everything. There's an understanding of the labor model and how people are being compensated. What's wild and can potentially be exploitative to the value of the business about this new model where all of a sudden 
a tip is being applied to a million different things is we're now kind of being asked to understand the labor models of a bunch of other businesses. And my favorite example, I was like ordering a lot of beer from and they threw like a tip amount on and I tipped a bunch because I was like, you know, I'm, I'm the one ordering beer to my apartment. Like I should be tipping on this. But at one point when I was trying to calculate it, I was like, I don't know how many deliveries they can make an hour. I don't know what base paying them besides New York minimum wage and all this stuff. And I love, I'm not trying to dunk on this, like a million people are in this situation. But one thing I can tell you from, they've done labor market analysis. When you start asking consumers to tip and decide what to pay people, sadly, especially in realms where it's not established and understood, the loser is the worker. You get way more people who go, Oh, I'm not tipping on this. This isn't the thing you tip on. Then people like me who are like, I don't know what to do. $30, Jesus. Like, so I think there's this interesting phenomenon that aligns with one of my favorite themes, which is it's like very easy to trick American people into thinking something is becoming democratized or more transparent when really it's like, I don't know. Why don't you fucking losers solve it? We're jetting off the islands billionaire style. And I think there's this massive explosion of tipping the A, labor market analysis already indicates that when you're like, hmm, oh, we're delivering now? Let's put a tip line item on. That always results in the negotiating down of what the businesses are paying those people over time. It puts the stress of trying to understand a new labor market on the end buyer. And again, there's a lot of research. It, it does not pan out well. The f- delivery people are, are not driving around in Maseratis. But, but Lee, if you think about it, you've seen in the headlines or when everything came out about the Amazon workers not having enough sick days to account for when they could test positive for COVID-19, they did an internal campaign of, hey, people should donate their sick days to their fellow colleagues. And it's like everything just filters down as to basically what you're saying. It's like consumers figure it out. Uber and Lyft had issues with their drivers not being able to, you know, having issues But if you think about it, all of the attention around like Uber, Lyft, whomever, these employees not getting healthcare and them not having enough money and driving their cars were essentially just to driving for Uber, Lyft or whomever was to essentially just pay their their lease that they got just that they got to drive for these companies. And the solve that felt like it was coming out of it. And this could just have been my interpretation, but it's like, let's add a tipping option to it. And it's like, these companies had been giving rides, not giving, but selling rides to consumers for a decade. And like you said, Lee, consumers were accustomed to saying from point A to point B cost me $20. And so whenever you're now saying point A to point B needs to cost you 26, and that six needs to be voluntary, it's just like the likelihood that that counters any issue you're having in terms of compensation with your drivers or your delivery people for these food apps or or, or whatever, it's just incredibly slim. And it's also, it's like, is it on the end consumer or in Amazon's case, the coworkers to be the ones to help you figure that out? Yeah, when they tell you that you should be the one to figure it out, they're always counting on you not figuring it out and someone else getting stiffed. That's it. And again, transparency and democratization. Honestly, it's, it's like the pharaohs telling the people dragging the blocks to the pyramid. Every day you get to pick a team captain and assign each other good boy points. And everyone's like, hooray! <laughs> like it's, I'm honestly embarrassed for us as a people.
I want to see these people get fairly compensated and I'm fucking angry at the tip line. You know, like that's where I am. I shouldn't figure out what is the right way to compensate them. (laughs) I think also like, I mean, this could be like curmudgeon me a little bit, but I kind of get a little like frustrated at the idea of of tipping before service in in a way. And I think that's potentially unfair. Like I I think it it may be even in my interpretation, like you you tip for kind of like above and beyond kind of thing. And it shouldn't be kind of tying into y'all's point. Like it shouldn't be their like wage to survive for like whatever, like the, the wage for the job should be, you know, cause like, I think we've all been burned by, you know, getting back to like DoorDash and, and all of them, like by a delivery person, like, we've already tipped them and they might as well just like dunked your bag of food in the Hudson, you know, by the time it like got to your, got to your door. Uh, and you're like, okay, can I take some of that tip that I was trying to like make this very palatable for you in terms of like something like that you wanted to like take and do like, I'd, I'd like to take some of that back because you didn't treat my food like with care. And there could have been a lot of things, you know, like crazy New York drivers that he was like swerving around and shit happens. But there's like, there's a lot of times where just you're tipping ahead of time. And is all that tip going to that individual? And yeah. It's, it puts all of this onto the consumer when like, there's potentially like the, the company could just take a little bit less of a margin, you know, like, I mean, just, just, a, just a smidge, you know, yeah, like no, that- I, I completely agree. It, it's, it's the other, it makes a false decision. They're just telling you to put some moral onus on yourself to fairly compensate their workers. And in cases where you even do understand the economics, you're right. It's still a false decision. Well, yeah, they push the the, the moral obligation onto the consumer instead of them themselves having it. And I have a whole big heap of shit to dump on like corporate social, like the CSR like kind of stuff. And even kind of getting into like Airbnb and my cynical ass, you know, in terms of like Airbnb probably did some cost benefit analysis of like, they didn't make that conversation about Airbnb is safe for all people just for the sake of it being safe for all people or like being the good, like that was like a, probably a marketing decision. And like, there's like a whole lot of this, like take back in terms of like companies, like offloading a lot of the moral responsibility back onto individuals. I was kind of like in, uh, in grad school was kind of like seen as like the black sheep in this like communication, like PR school. And everyone wanted to like blow smoke up everyone's ass about CSR just being like the most fantastic PR tool. And I'm like, it's all bullshit. Everyone in the ivory tower just was like, what? And I'm like, it all makes zero sense. It's all marketing. It's all not for the good of society. Every corporation is run by the collective, like whittles every good person down into like the like the collection of slime, just because it's the just the nature of the corporate like entity. And that's just the way it is. things down into just a pile of slime time to really fire up the hot take engines if you thought you'd already heard it this episode it's time to bring up the topic which is essentially throwing rocks at the highest ivory tower of advertising strategists what are you doing you come in every day produce materials that are certainly sent to clients they're beautiful i'll tell you that yeah gorgeous decks and we brought Darren on because he's moved from, you know, agency strategies and more user experience and product strategy outside of the agency world 
And I think we're going to examine this pretty fairly. I, I want to be very fair about it. I have to admit that when two people are having a conversation at an ad agency and one says to the other, well, I'm more focused on the strategy side. All they're saying is I went to a more prestigious college than you. You simply can't convince me in that conversation that they're saying anything else ever. Like that's it. That's all there is. Anyway, Darren, you've moved through these realms. What is your perspective on all this? I think it's helpful to start with where my perspective was before I went through these spectrums, if you will. So I looked at strategy for a long time since even since college. Strategy and it was often coined before strategy as account planning. I had a professor who was a pretty well-known account planner across the agency community in Atlanta and had learned, picked up on the trade from him and had prioritized it as something I wanted to get into before I started my career. And I, I always looked at strategy as putting a plan together and that plan clearly always having the opportunity to be iterative or to be adaptable, but that plan being what is almost like a moving nucleus that different departments across the agency, and then often even other agencies could basically follow to reach an end destination. And I think that even in becoming a strategist, which took me a, a long time, to your point, Lee, like I think that the barrier to entry can be high. And I don't even know like the right direct path to say to get in. I mean, I, I was able to do it by networking internally at an agency, was never successful doing it externally. Once I was in the agency and look, there's, there's a lot that we're going to have to dig into here. But I think that what I realized was that the access that the strategist could align to certain clients or to certain types of clients. And I think that the access that those strategists have largely dictate their role in the agency, which means it dictates their role with their colleagues. And then it ultimately dictates their role with how the agency has a, like does business and continues to do business with these clients. And I think that a big differentiator is that although you may see better media teams from one agency to another or better producers and, and better copywriters, the roles of those departments typically exist in like a pretty defined spectrum. The media team does X, the copywriters do Y, and they're involved and have relationships with these people at the client. And I think that that's a lot different with strategy. And so you see that that access, because it's inconsistent, that the effectiveness of strategists and their role in the agency and their, their businesses fluctuates accordingly. That's an incredible point. And it actually helps me clarify kind of my general beef with the definition of agency strategy, because the situation you're describing could sound phenomenal to an agency strategist in alliance with their high value narrative, which is like media operations, et cetera. It's commodified. It's all the same agency to agency. And the only differentiation is strategy. That's a perfect description of the department that is the differentiator for the agency. It makes the agency the agency, which is, as a lot of people have noted, it's still the core product of agencies that they want to tout and that they want to cite as differentiation. What I think is pretty prevalent is that this difference in strategy departments compared to any other department and agency that could absolutely prove the value of strategy because it's like, look, this is where agencies differentiate. I think a lot of it is, is 
shockingly purposeless and ambiguous. And the fact that certain agency strategy departments are different than other agency strategy departments is not a brilliant conscious differentiation, but just a remarkably visible to any sane person exhibition of sheer aimlessness and shoulder shrugging. And my favorite example, I think anytime you talk about strategy, you have to have the conversation of, are we just going to call our client facing people strategy at agencies? I mean, every agency, you have to have this like conversation, like, is the strategy team just who talks to the clients? I think client services are very valuable. I think they're very valuable client services people. I think they're extremely strategic ways to handle client services. I think it's a catastrophe to call your client services department, your strategy department. So that's just one example of where, yes, agency strategy departments are very different. Sometimes that's because some people are asleep at the wheel when they're defining what agency strategy is. Another thing to, to note here too, and this is, this is building on, on your point, is that strategists core value prop on top of like the idea of being able to think through a problem. And, and, and I, I don't believe that strategists are the only people at an agency that have the capacity to think through a problem. And I think that that's often why you could see tensions directed towards strategy teams. Cause it's like, well, what are you doing? We're solving problems all the time, every day, which is why we, why we have these great retainer clients and what have you. But I think that part of the role of the strategist is to be somebody who has been across different and similar problems that they've seen solved and can connect dots between those successes that they've seen. So maybe they've solved a problem within a vertical that's totally irrelevant to yours and within a vertical that's totally relevant to yours. And they're able to connect dots and say like, these are ways that I think that we can get started and just start to put a plan together. But where, where I have seen a problem or, or where I see a shortcoming of these departments is that strategists don't really have the direct relationship with the clients. So they're not really the revenue drivers, if you will, of the agency. So therefore they're not building the relationship with the decision makers at these businesses and building a reputation of when this person comes in, they know my business really well. They know what my internal political process to be able to carry out their recommendations. And so often I feel like it can come in as like, here's this tool that I'm bringing in, you know, a third of a way through this campaign process. And you should listen to them for the reasons that you mentioned, Lee. It's like, because of their title, because of the other cushy agencies they've worked at and the school that they went to. Meanwhile, it's like we forget as service people that throughout that process, the reason why you were in the room in the first place is because of the credibility and the relationship that you built up with those people. I think what's the, the challenge in, in the agency world with, I guess, I won't even say typical, but the, the most common way I've experienced like a strategy team or department is that they operate within this kind of like silo more than they probably should in terms of like, this is the the plan, this is the strategy, these are the audiences or personas or whatever, like, this is it. And it's like in a very like narrative format. And it feels real good to like listen to a strategy deck and like those kind of things. And then it always like matriculates and it gets down, it gets approved. And now it's like my team's job being like the paid media person. I was like, great, I actually have to take this and like, actually like, make it actionable. And I think a lot of times there's so much of like what comes across my desk is like, yeah, we're gonna have to completely redo this because like, this is impossible. 
you know, or like this audience isn't an audience. Like this is a persona. Like we can't target these people like at all. Like this doesn't exist. So then it feels like as a media person, sometimes like, like, well, I just feel like I'm doing now their job in terms of like fixing this in terms of like bringing us like back down to reality. And then kind of at the end of, of a campaign, potentially it's like, it's never the strategy person that's on the end of a, of a client call, just getting eviscerated for whatever happens within the campaign, because there's too much between strategy being approved and aligned on creative being made and the media being put in market to where like, they're almost like scot-free, like almost like all the time in this like world is terms of like, no, no, no. Like you need to sit in this here. And like, yeah, they might be yelling at me, but they're also like yelling at you you got to hear like what we deal with all the time. And like, in terms of like not thinking about these issues that big picture, like narrative things like, no, like when we put all of the things like into place and like what happens and what the market is done, like this is the outcome and this is what we have to like deal with. And so I think that's like what becomes like the frustrating element from a very like hands-on like paid media person in terms of dealing with strategy. It's like, it's oversold or even it's just like not even like based on like what's like feasible and then like like the, the snowball effect. And it's just like, they're, they're never on the hook for anything. I think the well, vast ambiguity has us coming at like so many different problems and descriptions. And I, I think Darren makes a great point about Maybe strategists don't even have the proper client access and proper grounding to even have that accountability. David makes a point about sometimes that can seem like a blessing. Like maybe if you're a strategist and you're like, I didn't even get to really dig in with the client. Well, the good news is you don't have to be around when they're really digging into us. <laughs> and I'm over here like 40% of agencies have fucking mixed up strategists with account people. And they think it's a good idea. <laughs> There's probably a major ass kicking going on. One party definitely thinks it's getting its ass kicked. One party definitely thinks it's doing the ass kicking. And ironically, it's the referee who seems to be sort of favoring one side, but not throwing in the towel. It's this whole agencies and consultancies thing, which I think Darren has a fantastic perspective on. And maybe we should get to simply because we have three agency people, one agency and consultancy person here talking about how there's a lot of ambiguity around agency strategy and agencies seem to have a hard time deciding on the right client relationship role for strategy and everything. I mean, maybe we just move to the boxing match and try and figure out, is there one side in this match that has this better defined? And is that really what's causing the stop, stop, he's already dead date oh. of that current fight? This is a very, very interesting topic in question. I think that it, it's got to be broken out into that the approach of these two businesses differs in how they sell work and then also how they position themselves, which kind of goes back to our point as to like strategy in general, just being so ambiguous, because even at a high level, you could probably be thinking like, what does that even mean? So my, my number one point though, is another thing where agency strategy can fall short is what, what is success for an agency strategist? Is it making everybody feel good in an internal presentation? Is it having a copywriter feel like, okay, I'm more confident in my direction than before? Is it going to a client pitch and saying like, we can do all these great 
decks because I think that on the agency side, you don't have as clear of the defined metric of success as a strategist. And I often found that like, that's why career ladders were always as ambiguous as the concept of strategy is. Whereas consultancies differ because their metric of success, David, this is gonna align with what you were mentioning earlier, is selling work. And although you could be selling work that you're not executing on, realistically, your job is to go in and put a plan together, a recommendation together around a problem, and then it's no longer your problem. That's not to be said that as a consultant, you don't want to sell more work to that client because you do, but there's even less of accountability on how your recommendation is interpreted as a consultant because it's typically a trickle down in terms of how the recommendations go on the consulting side. So to be honest, I'm not as privy, privy to this insight on the agency side. Maybe this is the case as well, but typically like the, the cushier the consultancy, meaning the higher level degree, the more expensive your education was to get in there, the higher up you are on the waterfall of PowerPoint slides that lead to the next consultancy that takes on the work building on what you did before. And so like the metric of success for consultancies is just to sell more work and get back to the top of that waterfall. Whereas I don't really know what the metric of success is for an agency strategist. I think that's a super interesting way to think about it. And it makes me think back to when we talked to Zach about elevating in a position where all it really becomes is you're doing this higher level work and then someone else is doing the actual work. Whereas like, you know, I'm curious in the, the strategy role within an agency, you're doing this work. And like, David, you said, it's like, you get something from a strategy person and you're like, I can't, what, this doesn't even translate to what I'm doing. Whose work is falling on deaf ears and where is the disconnect and why has no one figured out how to like meld these things? Cause I mean, to me, I think back to the way Lee and David, like our team functioned when we first started at Vayner and it was very much just like strategy. Sure. Execution. Sure. Analytics. Sure. Like, you know, it was kind of like a, whatever needs to be done gets done. So why have this differentiation to begin with? I sometimes get really frustrated at the ambiguity of these like strategist positions, but I can also like empathize with their position of how do I even progress through my career or, or move? It's like, if there's no rigors in terms of what is success from our standpoint, you know, like this, like everything that we do kind of gets like handed off in an agency world. Like it just moves to a different department, which is very different than from a consultancy side of things where they present the deck, the deck gets like the, the double thumbs up from the client and then it moves on to someone else to execute it. Or then it gets like refined. And then like, it just seems like this, like this one element that kind of gets passed around, but that is much shorter in terms of that waterfall and an agency, everything is so production or even not even for like performance marketing, but like marketing that performs in terms of like selling more business and those kind of things. Agencies really don't go to market or go to pitches with like, we have the best strategists. Like we have like great creatives or we have like a great media agency. It puts them in a very tough position as well. And I can definitely like see their side. They are bringing a value in terms of like this, looking at things from a very unique, different angle from ours, but also at the same time, like there's nothing like tangible that they can like even like talk in their annual review about like, look at all this like, badass strategy stuff that I've done because it gets handed off so so quickly. And they aren't the ones also responsible for selling in new work from the consultancy side. They live in this quasi sensory deprecation kind of like zone where they're just kind of like floating there. 
we're talking at angles a little bit about maybe an agency new business and revenue accountability crisis, where it sounds like a lot of the consultancies from a strategy standpoint have figured out that their top strategists should be accountable for some new business and revenue versus I think a lot of agencies, as much as my complaint angle is a little bit the, the confusion of strategy with account people, agencies that don't do that, and I think they have the truest version of agency strategists, I think they are kind of ivory tower in a way that both helps and harms them, and that they kind of get to flit about to varying meetings and, and drop three slides that get applause, but then like, so what? To, to David's point, like, are, are, is the problem neither with strategists nor account people mislabeled as strategists? Is it that one side simply understands the professional service industry and the other doesn't? Well, around consultancies, I would say what, what I saw is that in, in, in one's career, acceleration is typically broken out in three ways. And you often see that the, that the most advanced consultants have, have, you know, two of the three or if not all three. So it's, you're either great at selling because selling is like a definitely a big part of it. That, I would say that that's like becomes a big part of your career progression. Second, execution. In execution and consulting, unless you're in tax accounting or you're working as like a Salesforce analyst or something like that at Accenture, like execution does fall within the realm of strategy. You know, we can get into a conversation about like how deep, how that strategy fluctuates between consultancies, but I would say execution involves what is coined as strategy. And then the third is project leadership. And so the metrics for a person's career progression in their career are pretty easily defined. You want to have two or three of those to be pretty strong at. Whereas on the agency side, it's like you're never really leading a major initiative at the agency. Like I would say, like you pointed out, Lee, like you may have like some interesting content to be involved in, or you may be in part of an important meeting, but you're never really like the driver of a big campaign or a big media activation, something like that. And so that inherently creates a degree of distance between the other points, which is like, well, then if you're not really leading on execution in any way, other than some content and you're not really, and this is, I know I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but like, if you're not really in the room with the clients throughout navigating towards success, like then are you in a position to showcase that you are a great leader to reaching an endpoint, which is the goal of strategy, and selling more work, which you would need to be involved in with these clients much more closely to be able to have the credibility to sell more to those clients and then ultimately build up the experience you would need to go sell net new work. A thing that I've heard at senior leadership to agency facing meetings that I think a lot of agency people have heard is something along the lines of our competitors aren't the other agencies, our competitors are the consultancies. Frankly, I think this is a little ambitious for a number of agencies or it's falling on deaf ears because I've certainly seen a lot of agency activity that if you're honestly trying to compete with your McKinsey BCG Bain set, this ain't it. It really is not. Does anyone have any fantastic ideas how an agency that, you know, whether it's a legacy agency, a new agency, or even an agency-esque entity that isn't a traditional agency 
could really actually do a good job of aligning its strategy practice as well as its business generation and revenue enhancement functions to compete effectively in a world where strategy is is king, which it seems like both sides agree upon. I recently read that book, The Lords of Strategy, that's about the you know original conception of marketing consultancy groups. And again, I, I think a lot of people on the agency side think that strategy has been the essence of agency differentiation since at least the 1980s. What would an agency that either wants to truly compete with the consultancies in the strategy arena or wants to Airbnb it and create a third way do? So I don't have a solution but I will tell you what I view as the problem for traditional media agencies. And it kind of came from a lot of the conversation right now that Darren has kind of provided. Traditional agencies are way too executional, whether it's from a media standpoint or from a creative standpoint. Agencies today are built and they have too much DNA of doing the thing. And I think that's like living within within their house. And I think that's really kind of like probably the hardest barrier for them to break, you know, in terms of we'll just like tie into the past episode. They don't want to let go of their babies. I kind of see from, from the outskirts of like these consultancies, they present their idea. They know it's a really good idea. They get paid for their idea. And if you execute it or if you don't, uh, if it changes between inception to execution, that's totally fine. And I think that is probably the biggest barrier for these agencies. They just haven't been built or wired to do that. And there's probably some like real like institutional systemic things that kind of like create this cycle that continues. David, you're, you're right. And what we've got to definitely do if we're like actually going to, to think about ways that agencies can break into the space is like, you've got to take those top three consultancies out of it because the brand notoriety that those businesses have across like the fortune 500 to fortune 1000, I mean, even within well-funded startups, it's absurd. I mean, and that's why they continue to stay so close to you need an MBA from this level of, of school or above to get in because it just continues their brand of the type of people that they've created an assimilation between of this is who you want to come in and solve your problems for a lot of money. But where agencies probably could start to win in the space is look at the consultancies that were not traditional strategy services providers, such as like a Deloitte and Ernst & Young, KPMG, PwC. They had two things. So one, they had a service that created a way in, like basically your tax accounting services. And then they've leveraged those services as a way in to create these really strong relationships in these businesses. And so they can go and spin off these units, these, you know, Deloitte Digital, Ernst & Young's got one. Parthenon. Yeah. PwC has ampersand. My point is though, is that they have these massive, not only deep relationships with these organizations that get their foot literally, I mean, physically in the door. They've got offices with their names on them at these businesses, but it also creates this guaranteed revenue stream where they can go and take a risk and say, we're gonna try and specialize in these things that we're gonna do for these businesses. And so David, to your point, you can leverage your expertise in execution to be able to almost like throw darts at the board to figure out like what would stick in terms of me creating a degree of separation from other agencies and also like building a strategy department that has demand amongst businesses that I'm working with and what we'll be pursuing in market. 
That's a fantastic point. And it's been effective. And I will tell you, when I graduated college, I had a bunch of friends who went to work at PwC exclusively for the most boring of boring accounting things. You know, it was the guys who had taken enough credit hours to sit for their CPA. And, you know, we're just going to bean count harder than anyone had ever counted beans. And that was it. And now 10 years later, they're working at an organization that has a better chance of winning solid, high value, interesting marketing projects than the average agency. It's that time frame where it went from like PwC, you know, the three letters in the alphabet that might put you to sleep to like, oh, it's Droga 5 versus PwC. And you're like, well, how did that happen? Come on. Is it a bean counting contest? They've been wildly successful with that. And I'm old enough to have entered the workforce in an era where you didn't associate the big accounting firms with anything other than the least flashy and persuasive things possible. If you go back, though, to the point that you had made, it's 10 years of work to get to that destination of having that credibility. And I'm, I'm going to go back to something I've said earlier on in the pod. It's access really matters. So to give everyone perspective here. So often in my times as a strategist at the agency, I was restricted to uncovering deep insights about streetwear or what time of day and what setting parents prefer consuming a specific product, whether it be with their significant other, their children are alone. And it doesn't mean that those, that those findings don't matter. It's just to say that if you want to go back to what I had said, what I thought that the idea of strategy is, it's basically creating something to gather around that's a vehicle to an end point. Uncovering insights around something very specific isn't really going to, it could be a catalyst, but it's not leading you to a point. And so you need access to people that are able to basically give you the opportunity to be involved in projects or campaigns or whatever it is, maybe the launch of a new brand, product, whatever, to be able to do exactly that, take something from one point, one point to another. And I, I just think that agency strategy departments right now, and I know there are some that are outliers, you know, you've got your, your widens and so on that do, and Droga maybe still, but for the most part, they don't. And so that's why they're left out of broader initiatives that would require thinking beyond the campaign level and how you get people to move towards, like I said, that, like that, that goal. I heard about two things and sort of a counter to an attempted dunk I made once. I was talking to someone who was working on expansion into digital and they said there was something a little fundamentally dishonest about it inherently as far as they were positioning the offering, which at the time my brother was working at in the mergers and acquisition department for software and factory robotics, which obviously requires like a high quality undergrad engineering degree at the very least, plus like a good GPA at that point. And I was, I was kind of trying to get at this guy about the nameplate cache and it's overextension. And I was saying, look, you guys are trotting this digital offering out and you're saying, oh, it's people. But what you're not telling people is it's not guys who got high grades at Georgia Tech and can value robots and software for M&A. You're implying that it is. But what it really is, it's just the same agency gumshoes, scumbags and gutter trollers that I've been working with for years who happen to apply to your jobs first. 
So you've got this highly pedigreed labor force and you're implying they're involved in your digital arm. I've worked with your digital arm. I know people who went to your digital arm. It's just agency people. I'm joking on shitting on people who work at digital. I'm not or any, but it, it, a lot of them are just agency people. A lot of them are just the same people. You're 100% right. Yeah. 100% right. And it's funny. This guy said, I will give you that. I will admit it. Yes, we are charging way more for the same people saying the same shit as before. But let me tell you two things. When one was the access, he was like, you're never going to get a marketing contract like we got with because we're not doing marketing consulting. We're telling them that they're going to make 250,000 more cars and we're all going to sell them. And that marketing is a small part of that. That's what we're playing for. They don't want you to approach them about playing for, oh, and we'll sell all the cars. The other thing, and this was a dig that, I mean, I'm admitting this is a vicious counter dunk. I mean, this just, this one just sucked all the air out of me. And this person was like, and honestly, being new to the marketing side and have spent most of my time in managing consulting, do you know why we're going to whip you? You're the worst managed organization class on earth. Agencies are managed so badly, top to bottom, left to right, find me any segment of an agency and you guys should hire us because you don't know what you're doing. And I was just like, I don't even know what to say about that one. I mean, I was just like left stammering on the floor of some stupid digital conference. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've literally heard the access thing brought out as like, yeah, here's why you're face down in the toilet with us swirling you. We don't want to do marketing, you idiots. And I was just like, oh no. Um, And so working only on little consumer insights, that's an even tinier sub-segment. You know, yeah, like who wants to take time to buy that? If you think about it, anything else, it's you want to increase your addressable market of what you're selling could be relevant to, who it could be relevant to. In the service side of things in business, it's, and another thing here too is that consultancies, because they, we are calling them consultancies and not ad agencies or marketing agencies or whatever, they're able to hide behind that they can morph to whatever RFP they get. Whereas let's say you're an integrated agency, you still are A, gonna have a reputation for one of your departments being the lead of your business. It's, I feel like it's impossible not to. And then two, you're just thought of as, I'm gonna go to them with a marketing problem that I'm looking for them to solve through the end result being ads on the internet or, or through another medium that work. Whereas consultancies, you could say, I'm looking to replace redundancies in my tax department. I think too many people are just copy and pasting and I would rather robotics do that. Technically a consultancy that specializes in marketing and customer experience could twist a few case studies into saying that they're experts in that. The breadth of what's on the table and more so how you illustrated that it's literally impossible for an agency to say that they could do tax strategy. And I've kind of even like been in this situation when I was freelancing where, look, it's just me and a couple e-com guys, but we're not an agency. And if someone is trying to ask us serious econometric questions, I mean, yeah, we can fake it. And the entire reason is we're not an ad agency. Well, we're just three dudes. You have a degree in economics. People can just tell you're a little math pervert. Like I I had experiences freelancing 
where I could lay claim to territories that were completely insane that would have been immediately invalidated if I worked in that agency. And that was just me as an individual. So what someone with a reputable consultancy could do by comparison is insane. If I can claim that I can manage the demand market for buying a used product to feed into advertising for resale, saw a freelance product where someone was like, not only do we want to help your, like, you know, your little online resale for specialty goods site, we want to build the model for managing buying stock. And it was like, we shouldn't be able to say we can do that. And he was like, no, 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 it's going to be good. And I was like, oh, sorry. I was thinking about being an ad agency where when you're like, I want to manage the demand side of a resale market, he'd be like, absolutely not. Like, what did you study English at Dingleberry College of the Woods? Get out of here. And literally not even being a reputable consultancy, but merely being like, well, we're not specifically an ad agency. People were like, well, that opens 40% of the field. So is there an element in the credibility of an ad agency that is addition by subtraction? If you remove the name or the, the title or the taxonomy of I am an ad agency, are you then particularly more credible on, on certain elements, even as a, a freestanding collection of, of three individuals? I want to say yes in theory, but a bunch of agencies also just tried to stop calling themselves agencies and people just called their bullshit. So I think there's limits. But you're still an agency. Yeah. So like, yeah, well, okay. So I was being like kind of semantic. Like if you just change your name, but like the essence of like, if you're still an agency, is that the, the big detractor from your ability to flex into these kind of more highbrow or like elevated concepts from like a, a business standpoint, just for the sake of not being an agency? I've been shocked. I feel like the further I've progressed in my career, the more I've found out that businesses call themselves something that they're not. I wouldn't be surprised if, and, and leave, you said you've got some examples of it not working. I, I wouldn't be surprised if agencies could start subsidiaries or new companies and brand them as differently and just hire new people, but also leverage people that have worked across a variety of verticals within you know, let's call it your parent agency network to start to foray into a, a broader array of projects. That said, I, I do think something significant to note here though, is that it's always like the grass is greener on, on the other side. A lot of these projects, they're like the shiny objects whenever you're not working on them, but they become, and I'm not trying to compare it to running like a media campaign or seeing like a creative campaign all the way through, but you do recognize that it's a lot of the same like monotonous tasks and innovation is mostly not real. The end outcome was predetermined by somebody. Like if you're working on an Alexa skill or something, it's like, is it really innovation? You know, or is it really, you're just, you're just part of carrying out an idea into reality essentially. So we're, we're all just trapped in the same deterministic, you know, three guys in a room agreeing to the outcome two years later. And then all just all just players on the stage to make that happen. Brutal. Darren, this has been fantastic and we've tackled a lot of topics. It's Time to put to you our standard bad impressions finale question. 
what's something going on in the general field of putting things online to convince people to do stuff that you think is um, like really funny that it happens uh, that you would like to see get better? You know, something that is just a, a real self-own for everybody who practices the persuasive arts. I'm, I'm going to start with a concept. So I do believe that personalization is possible as somebody that could operate like a website or like an environment or an experience. But I think that the idea, the idea of personalization in, in advertising is the value of it and the focus on it is far too exaggerated. And I think that there's no way from what I've seen in media, or at least I haven't seen brands be able to execute on it, for brands to truly be able to meet customers where they are. And so you inevitably come across as like insincere and really trying to push things that maybe even customers weren't necessarily into. And that comes back to whether it's you could share an apartment with somebody and share an IP address or give your Wi-Fi to all your guests. And then it's like, you're just delivering ads to that person because of something that's like not necessarily saying that the people on that IP address are into or because they clicked on something they aren't into. And I think it takes away from the opportunity for advertising and marketing to like actually create a feeling. If I clicked on a pair of Adidas shoes and I bought another pair of Adidas shoes, a week later, I made it, I moved on from that. And so following me around the internet, following me on Instagram with that same shoe, or it falls flat to me whenever there's a better opportunity to create an emotion that may say like, okay, now I'm going to buy more Adidas. I'm going to buy more of that brand. Fantastic. We have a good number of enemies of personalization who have come through the show. So we love to hear that theme ripped on. I agree. I think it's gotten completely psychotic and falls under this umbrella that I think we'll address one day of, you know, people are going to come at me with like Apple and other things on this, but like nobody gives a shit about your brand, you know, except the poor 50 suckers you get into a room with you at a conference to hear about you built it. This notion that like, and I remember, I, I think the height to get to David's CSR is bullshit thing. The fact that an incredible joke tweet is the silence of blank on this is deafening, where there's like some sort of issue and there's absolutely no reason some brand should have a stance on it. And, and the notion that there's this audience like waiting for Diet Coke to make a statement it's a chemical slurry in a can attached to a, the original large-scale CPG marketer. I've seen decks where people talk about consumers have an expectation from a brand, remembering those people. Like, I should call a wellness check-in on them. Like, they weren't okay. Consumers <laughs> have an expectation from this brand that is this. Like, what the hell are you talking well, and, about? And some brands have a personality, and, and there's definitely outliers to that, but to think that with access to so much information now, which is another topic that people are sitting around waiting on, on you know, whatever brand to make a statement about the last thing to have been relevant in the news or to, or to, to create some messaging around that, I just think is, is absurd. And at the end of the day, people want, the reason why marketing and advertising works is that people, you're, you're striking a chord with a feeling or, you know, or it could be an emotion that happens when somebody uses or buys your product. 
And I think that forcing a message, you know, whether it's something like what Pepsi did a couple of years ago, there's a disconnect between the creating an emotion with somebody and, and the relationship you can have between a consumer and the brand. And then also and personalization, I, I do believe is, is why this exists is like making a stance on something to make your brand feel more real than it is. And it just undersells your consumer is like most of your consumers, your saps. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure plenty of them are, but the reality is, is that I, I, I believe most of them are not. Yeah, and, and again, the, the, the creation of that expectation similar to CSR, I think I periodically see a survey like 83% of consumers expect a personalized experience. We don't have enough time in the day, let alone the rest of this episode, for me to talk about surveying people about, do you expect a personalized experience and what that could possibly mean? Like, yeah, I'll take the data from Delta's next survey that says 90% of our consumers say they should get updated to first class. Or yeah, to first e class. exactly. Yeah, who's going <laughs> to ask you, A, who's going to say they don't expect that? And also B, how many of those people know what we're fucking talking about? Like there's some marketing hubris. Like, do you expect a curated online offline experience? If you even know how to answer that question properly as a non-advertiser, you should be arrested. You psychopath. <laughs> like, if I don't have a curated data connected online to in-store experience, I become upset. Like what is wrong with you? <laughs> like, how do you even know what we're asking you weirdo? <laughs> anyway, it's been another episode of Bad Impressions. We've covered a lot. Historically, I have asked users to comment in a commentable medium. It has been brought to my attention that there's no such thing as a comment on a podcast episode on any major platform. You could leave an iTunes review and write about the whole podcast. But yeah, I've been asking all of you to do something that's technologically impossible which can probably tell you how many podcasts I listened to before I started doing this one. That's not a lot. You can email us at sadmen at badimpressions.com. S-A-D. Online. Dot online. Online. I'm doing it again. Areas yeah. left and right. We have a contact form at badimpressions.online. You can also fill out if you've moved beyond email. If you're millennial mode hardcore, I think Zoomers are back into email. I know they're into Google Docs. Not sure about email. Yeah, reach out, give us some feedback, let us know if you'd like to come on the show or if you have any good guest ideas. And anyway, that's a wrap for episode five. I hope we left a bad impression. Mm -hmm.